We are in tab two in your notebooks, which is the second of three parts of our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. We've completed the first part, and the first part is survey of the Bible. And now for a few weeks, we'll be looking at interpreting the Bible, and then we'll finish our class with the third part, which is applying how to apply the Bible. So today we are going to begin on page one under, after that second tab on how to interpret, and we really only got the first line done at the top last week uh, as we started this uh, second part of the class, where it says the Bible has both divine and human authors. That is, although God is the source of the scriptures, man composed man composed it. So I made the point last week, if you were here, you may recall, at the end of our class, I made the point that that issue, that fact, causes people some difficulty in interpreting the Bible. The fact that the Bible has, every book of the Bible has uh, two authors. You have God and you have the human author. And the reason it causes some people difficulty is because they fail to understand that what we're trying to do is understand the meaning of both God and the human author, not God or the human author. In other words, you don't separate those. And yet in some people's minds, we don't care so much about the human author's intent. We want to get God's intent. And the assumption there is that somehow those are are or can be different. So we discussed last week the fact that, no, they're one and the same. That if you have the human author's meaning, you have Paul's meaning. If you have you have Paul's meaning, you have God's meaning. If you have Isaiah's meaning, you have God's meaning. If you have Daniel's meaning, you have God's meaning. And so it's extremely important for us to understand that uh, from the beginning. That although each book of the Bible has two authors, God and the human author, that if you get the human author's meaning, that's God's intended meaning. And we don't differentiate those. We don't separate those. We don't find some esoteric way of trying to find God's hidden meaning behind the human author's meaning. I gave you some examples uh, last week of, of how people how people do that. I uh, gave you examples of how people do allegorical interpretation of the Bible. And so that's taking the, the, the meaning and spiritualizing, spiritualizing it so that you're somehow getting God's meaning. And when you start that, now the only limit to the kinds of interpretations you can get are the imagination of the person doing the interpretation. They can imagine just about anything, anything you want. So I'll give you one other example, a couple other examples, and then we'll move on of how people use these kind of funky methods to interpret the Bible to get at this greater, greater meaning. Uh, I have a book on my shelf. I told you guys I keep some books on my shelf just to give negative illustrations. So not all the books on my shelf are recommended. But there's one called The Bible Code. The Bible Code. And it made a big splash a, a number of years ago. And the author's claim was that there are hidden meanings in the text, particularly the Old Testament. And if you take the Hebrew Old Testament, your Old Testament was written in Hebrew, if you take that and you uh, you, you do crossword puzzles sometimes or you do uh, puzzles where you find words in a bunch of letters, right? And you can go backwards, you can go diagonal. Well, that's exactly what the Bible Code did. And it did something called equidistant letter sequencing. So in the case of the Bible code, the letters weren't even necessarily in sequence, but they were in equal distance from each other. 
And so by doing this, you could find all kinds of sequences and patterns. And I remember one of the big claims to fame was that out of this, they found a prophecy in the Bible of the assassination of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. So he was assassinated, and that was supposedly predicted in the Old Testament, but via this equidistant letter sequencing nonsense. Okay. So God has somehow got these hidden codes, and it's our job to, to kind of try to try to find those. Another way that people do this is through a numerology in the in the Bible. So they find significance in numbers in, in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's finding significance in chapters and verses in the uh, in the Bible. Now, anybody see the fallacy of that? Since when God wrote the gave the Bible, there were no chapters or or verses. So I remember hearing a sermon about on the the middle verse of the Bible, the middle verse of the entire Bible in Psalm one eighteen, and in a particular verse. And there's some significance to this verse because it's the middle verse. Of the entire Bible. Well, again, when Psalm 118 was written, you know, it was one psalm among many. And then the book of Psalms is one among 39 in the Old Testament. And then those 39 are 39 among 66 of the whole Bible. And so the idea that God intended some significance about this middle verse when Psalm 118 was composed is, is not nonsense. But that's the kind of thing people do. So when you hear someone teach the Bible, when you hear someone preach the Bible, you want them to not be doing anything like that. You want them to be taking a passage and trying to understand what the human author intended to convey when he, when he wrote it. And so if you differentiate between the divine author and the human author, then you're going to have one method for the one, another method for the other, and run into all sorts of problems. So back to the top of page one. The Bible has both divine and human authors. That is, although God is the source of the scriptures, man composed it. God has providentially superintended the production, compilation, and preservation of the Bible in order to communicate his message to mankind. Now you see in that sentence there, the word superintended is in in parentheses, or parentheses in quotation marks. And that's because uh, there's a... uh, a definition, a fairly famous definition of the inspiration of the Bible. The fact that the Bible came to us from God, in which Charles Ryrie, Charles Ryrie is the guy who gave this definition, and he says that inspiration is God's superintending, that's the word he uses, superintending, of the human authors, so that what they wrote was exactly what he wanted written. God superintended, that is, God oversaw the activity of the human authors so that what they wrote is exactly what he wanted written. So God has providentially done that, overseen the production, the compilation, and the preservation of the Bible in order to communicate his message to mankind. And he's chosen to use human authors to do that. He's overseen it, but they've composed it. So he's used these human authors with their personalities, with their language, in order to give us his message. And that's why then we want to find out what they meant in order to get what God intended. The successful communication of any message, whether from God or man, 
always requires interpretation. Interpretation is the process that allows us to understand the author's intended meaning. So you see in the box there, our goal in reading and studying is to do that, to understand the author's intended meaning. What did the author intend to convey by what he, by what he wrote? Now, as you apply that to the Bible, you have to put some effort into understanding the author's intended meaning. Here's why. We're going to see in a, in a little bit that as I talk right now, you're not having to put much effort into understanding what I'm saying, I hope. And the reason is, is because I live at the same time and at the same place you do. And I speak the same language. So therefore, as I'm speaking, you're interpreting. But you're interpreting automatically. You don't even think about the fact that you're interpreting. But with the Bible, you have to consciously do what you unconsciously do when you hear messages all day long. With the Bible, you have to now consciously do this. I have to now say, what did the author intend to think to myself? What did the author intend to communicate? Now, why is it intentional, conscious effort with the Bible and it's, and it's unconscious, automatic, no effort when I'm speaking right now? And the difference is the Bible is old and the Bible is written at different places than we're familiar with. You put both those together. Time and place. And it means now, since the Bible was written at a different time and in different places, I have to put conscious effort into understanding what the author intended to communicate. But I want you to know that what we're doing with the Bible when we do that is not different than what you're doing right now as you listen to me. You're having to interpret it. You're having to do the things we're going to see in a bit, put it in what I'm saying in context and all of that. But you're able to do it quickly. So we're going to do that same thing with the Bible, but we can't do it quickly. We have to think about it. We have to think about the steps that go that go into it. So we want to find out what Moses meant when he wrote, and what David meant, and what Isaiah meant, what Daniel meant, what Paul meant, and so on. That's going to be our, our goal. Now, this need to put conscious effort into finding the author's intended meaning uh, is something you have to do with any document that is old and written at a different a different place. Uh, we have an example of that with our Constitution. So you've got a document that's not 2,000 years old. In the case of the you know, oldest books of the Bible, you're looking at 3,500 years. But in the case of the Constitution, over 200 years. But even that gives us some difficulty, Right? So, for example, the Constitution says that the president can be impeached. And he can be impeached for, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors. So the, the grounds for impeaching the president is high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, in order to today, to today know if a president has transgressed that, you got to know something about what high crimes and misdemeanors were at the time that was written. Or, you take the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. The Eighth Amendment uh, prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. Well, in order to know whether or not a particular type of punishment for crime 
transgress is cruel and unusual, we've got to know something about what did that mean at the time that it was, it was written. Just as an aside, uh, it doesn't mean capital punishment. So, I'm just giving you, I'm just weighing in here now, okay? But at the time the Constitution was written, capital punishment was not in itself. Forget the method for a moment. The taking of the life of a person who's committed a capital crime was not considered cruel and unusual. How do we know this? Because they all did it. At the time, they prohibited it. Prohibited cruel and unusual punishment. So apparently, they didn't think capital punishment was cruel and unusual. Now, there may be forms, forget maybe, there are forms of that that would fit cruel and unusual. So this idea of your objective being to understand the author's intended meaning is something you need to understand as you interpret the Bible. We want to know what Paul meant, what Daniel meant, not some hidden thing, not some esoteric thing that's supposedly God's message. And then likewise, you've got this debate with the, with the Constitution. And I'll just wax political here for a minute, and then I'll shut up. But this is why it is so important for you to understand what kinds of judges a particular president would nominate. Is it someone who understands that I want to get the meaning of the Constitution as it was given versus there's a whole rival school of thought that says that the Constitution is a living document and that its meaning changes over time. Its meaning changes over time. So you've got to decide, do I believe that? Do I believe that it it meant what it meant and that continues to be the case 200 years later? Or does the meaning change over time? In the case of the, in the, case of the Bible, God said what he said at the time he wrote it, and we're trying to understand what that is. And I would suggest to you there's an analogy to constitutional interpretation as well. We want to understand what it meant when it was written. Now, if you buy that then, the meaning does not change. But there are all kinds of different applications of that meaning. The meaning's the same, but there are different applications. Let me give you an illustration, again, from the Constitution. Fourth Amendment. Uh, the Fourth Amendment makes illegal uh, uh, unlawful searches and seizures. And it says that persons are to be secure in their persons and in their effects and in their property. And they're not to be subject to unlawful searches and seizures. So the police can't come and just beat on your door. They've got to have what? They've got to have a warrant to do that. So the, the Fourth Amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, says that. But again, what, is, what, what do they mean by those kinds of terms? In your persons, in your effects, in your property, in what do they mean by searches and, and seizures? And so uh, we have to apply now that meaning to different circumstances too. When the Constitution was written, uh, there was no such thing as laser technology. To be able to zoom into somebody's house from, you know, 100 yards away and to be able to see what's going on in somebody's house 
without having to beat down the door. You didn't have the technology for that. So can police do that? Can police surveil someone in their house even though they didn't knock on your door, they're not on your property? Well, that's those are things judges got to decide. And the way they have to decide them is they have to determine what is what did search and seizure mean at the time? And now how would you apply that in an equivalent way with new technology? And judges have to deal with that stuff all the time in their job. So the point I'm making here is that there's the meaning, but then there's the application. The meaning doesn't change. But the application changes over time because there are varied circumstances to which you need to appropriate what that meaning is. All right. So the goal of the reading study process is to understand the author's intended meaning. Interpretation is not often given sufficient consideration because most interpretation occurs instantly without conscious thought. <clears throat> this is because most messages we receive are <clears throat> contemporary, that is, they're happening now, and local, they're happening here. As a result, we automatically understand the author's intended meaning because we're familiar with the circumstances, the customs, the language, and many other factors involved in communication. So let me give you an example. Uh, if it were fall and uh, a Sunday, and I were to say to you guys, the Lions won today, you would know what I'm talking about. Well, first, you would say you're lying. <laughs> but after that, you would know I'm referring to our local football team and the particular game that they were engaged in. You would know that because it's contemporary and local. Now, if 2,000 years ago you said that in Rome, and you say the Lions won today, that means the Christians had a bad day, right? Exactly. <laughs> it means a completely different thing. So when, when someone makes a statement contemporary and local, they're just things you automatically understand. You automatically, and then you can chuckle immediately or groan immediately or whatever, whatever the case is. The Bible, however, was written in the past. Therefore, we must work to consciously apply, apply principles of interpretation that we unconsciously use every day. So we're going to move on, but I just got to drill home then that what we're going to be looking at today and next week these rules of interpretation, they're not unique to the Bible. These are the rules of interpretation that you use for everything. You just don't think about it. You use rules of interpretation. You've used them all day today. You're using them now. You use them if you read the newspaper, if you've been on the Internet. You had to use these rules, but it all happened instantly for you, automatically for you. So the things we're going to look at, they apply to the Bible, but they apply to anything else you're seeking to interpret as well. Middle of page one. The proper method of interpretation is called literal or normal interpretation. Now, I prefer the word normal rather than literal. And the reason is, is because literal, for some people, uh, means that you don't take into account things like figures of speech. But the Bible's full of figures of speech. We're going to see some of those. The Bible's full of poetry. And poetry is, is by its design not to be literal. So there are portions of the Bible that are not designed to be taken literally, but that's the key point. You've got to 
allow the context to determine whether it's to be taken literally or figuratively. You don't get to make that up. You don't get to decide, I don't like what that says, therefore I'm going to make it figurative. The context has to determine that. So that's why I prefer normal, the word normal, because normal takes that into account. Normal takes into account that there are such things as figures of speech and poetry. The consistent application of the principles of normal interpretation will yield consistent interpretations. The reason varying interpretations of the Bible's message exist is that all do not play by the same rules. So I've already given you last week and today, I've given you examples of how people use different kinds of rules to interpret the Bible, to allegorize it, to spiritualize it. And that is why then you you can listen to someone teach on the meaning of a passage and they've got something completely different than what somebody else says. Because they're not playing by the same rules. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that if you follow these rules we're going to go through, that you'll never have any difficulty with any passages in the Bible. The Bible is old. The Bible was not written in our language. And so you have to, you have to work at it in order to get the author's intended meaning. And there are some subjects in the Bible, some passages in the Bible, that are notoriously difficult. So I'm not saying that there are none like that. There are. But there are not as many as you think. And if we use these just common sense, everyday human interpretive rules and apply those to the Bible, then we're going to find consistent interpretations. This lesson, then, is going to explain the biblical principles of interpretation based on the following three facts. All communication has these three contexts, historical, literary, and grammatical. All communication has all three of those. So all three, uh, every time a message is presented, communicated, whether in writing, whether verbally, there is historical context, there's literal con- literary context, and grammatical context. All right, the first step. All communication has an historical context. Every book of the Bible was written at a particular time and place and for a particular purpose. These and similar factors make up what is known as the historical context. So if I want to know what the context is historically, the time and place And what was going on at the time this was written, here are some of the things I need to do. I need to interpret every biblical text in light of its purposes. Every author seeks to accomplish a purpose through his writing. Let me just stop there. Do you you think that's true? I mean, otherwise, I mean, unless, unless the person was completely random and they're just doodling. But otherwise, anything you write, you write with a purpose. And anything that the writers of the Bible wrote, they wrote with a they wrote with a purpose. So every author seeks to accomplish a purpose through his writing, his selection of those to whom he would write, the theme of what he wrote, his tone, and all of that are related to his purpose. So in order to understand a text meaning, it's helpful to determine the author's purpose. Why did Paul write this? Why did Daniel write this? Why did Isaiah write this? And all of that is in an historical context. There was stuff going on that contributed to the the reason, the purpose for which they wrote what they did. So how are you going to know that purpose? How are you going to get that? Bottom of page one. Sometimes it's easy. 
Sometimes the purpose for a book of the Bible is out and out stated. You have an example of that in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, notice that's 1 John 5, which is the last chapter of 1 John. This is the conclusion of the book of 1 John. I say the conclusion. It's not the last verse. There are 21 verses in chapter 5. But this is the conclusion of what he's been saying for four and a half chapters. And then from verses 14 to 21 in chapter 5, he just gives some sort of sign-off. Okay, But the body of the letter of 1 John goes from chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 5 and verse 13. And the very last verse of that body says, here's what I've written to you. I've written... Notice the two words, so that. Here's my purpose. That you may know that you have eternal life. And if you then were to go back to those four and a half chapters, guess what you'd find? You'd find that the stuff he's written there all contributes to that purpose. So that you'll have assurance, so that you'll know that you have eternal life. And in those four and a half chapters... If you were to go back and read those, you'll see that John gives three tests of whether or not someone can be assured that they're really saved. Three tests. There's um, the, the doctrinal test. Do they believe proper doctrine? Do they believe truth? There's the social test. The social test is do they love God's people? If anyone says, John says, I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. So there's the social test. Relationships among God's people. Doctrinal test. If anyone says Jesus is not the Christ, that Jesus has not come in the flesh, 1 John 4 says, then he is an antichrist. So that's a a truth, a doctrinal truth, that if someone is truly saved, if someone is to have confidence and assurance that they have eternal life, then they have to pass the doctrinal test. They have to pass the social test, loving the brethren, and then the moral test. The moral test. The moral test is how you live. And 1 John 2, and verse 6, John says that if anyone claims to be in him, he must walk as Jesus walked. Live as Jesus lived. Follow in Jesus' steps. That's the moral test. So you got these three tests. you got the doctrinal test, the social test, you got the moral test. And John gives all of those, and then at the end says, here's why I've written these things, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his purpose for writing it. And now that helps you, knowing the purpose, helps you to fit in. That's why he's saying this stuff. Right? That's giving me the historical part of the historical context, knowing his purpose. Now, just uh, as an aside... What if somebody doesn't pass all those tests? You know, John is saying, here's how you know if you have eternal life. Here's how you can be assured. If somebody is not passing those tests, then should they be assured that they have eternal life? The answer is no. Yeah. Have you ever thought of this? Is it possible for someone to not be assured, but to actually still have? 
My answer to that is yes. It's possible for someone to have eternal life, but for them to have good reason to doubt it for a period of time. You know, if you're if you're sinning, if you're not walking as Jesus walked, which we all do. In fact, First John says that very book. You know, if if we say we have no sin, First John one seven, we First John one eight. If we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But you know, if I'm sinning, if you're sinning, and, and particularly if I'm sinning in a pattern, I ought to question that. Now, it might be that I'm saved, and it might be that that questioning is the very means that God's going to use to convict me and bring me back in line. But we shouldn't be so quick to assure ourselves or other people. No, you're good. Because I remember you prayed a prayer when you were three. You know? You're good no matter what you're doing. John doesn't say that. You're, there's some evidence that... Uh, needs to be present in order to have that assurance. All right, so then top of page two. The purpose of a book then might just be out and out stated. But a lot of times in books of the Bible, the purpose is not stated directly like it was in 1 John 5, and it is in some others, but it's rather implied. And what's it implied by? Well, here are some examples. The purpose may be implied by other statements within the book. Take the book of Galatians. Paul wrote Galatians, six chapters in that book. And at the very beginning in chapter one, you get an idea about why he's writing this. He is very concerned, to put it mildly, he's very concerned about them being taught some false doctrine about the the gospel. Verse 6 of the first chapter, we have it for you there. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now notice there's no direct purpose statement there. It doesn't say, like John did, I'm writing this so that, because, he just jumps right into it. I'm astonished that this is what you're doing. But then you go to read the rest of what he's writing and he is taking them on about what he preached to them versus what they're being taught by some false teachers. And in fact, he says, if we are an angel of heaven, preach to you a gospel other than that which you heard from us, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be eternally condemned. That's how strong this is. So what's the purpose of Galatians? Straighten this false doctrine out. And then secondly, it may be implied by other statements or it may be implied by what is known of the author and recipients. For example, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. In the first, he explicitly stated his purpose. So just like in 1 John 5.13, you've got the purpose stated. 1 Timothy, book of 1 Timothy, you've got the purpose stated also. I am writing you these instructions so that You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So he's writing, Paul is, to his protege, Timothy. We know that he's his protege from the book of Acts. And he's writing to him to tell him how life ought to go in the father's house. How life ought to go in the church, in the local church. 
He's writing to young Timothy, a pastor, to tell him how he ought to pastor and how he ought to seek to have the church organized and the church behave and conduct itself. So that's why he wrote First Timothy. Although Paul did not state his purpose in the second letter he wrote to Timothy, it can be easily determined by what is known of the relationship between the two seen in First Timothy. In light of Paul's mentor relationship with Timothy, the purpose for the words of his second letter become clear. It's to prepare Timothy to assume greater leadership responsibilities as Paul's ministry draws to an end. In fact, you see that in 2 Timothy. It's only got four chapters in it. And in those four chapters, what you consistently see Paul doing with Timothy is he's trying to buck up his courage. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, of fear, but of power and of a sound mind, he says Timothy. He says, Timothy, be strong in the Lord. He says in the fourth chapter, the final chapter, that's where he he tells him what to do, Timothy, whatever you do, preach the word. At the uh, instant in season and out of season, and encourage and rebuke. Do the work of an evangelist, verse 5 of chapter 4. And then those famous words in verses 6 through 8, the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the fight, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give. And not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. Now why is he saying all that? He's ready to be killed. He's ready to be executed. And he's written all this stuff to Timothy to say, Timothy, I'm the time of my departure is at hand. You know my way of life, chapter 3. You know the persecutions I endured. You know how I endured them all and how the Lord brought me through them all. He's trying to buck up his courage, isn't he? So what's the purpose for that? You see it implied in what you know about the relationship between Paul and, and Timothy. Now, middle of page two. Note, this point assumes that one can get, can determine who the author was and who the recipients are. Often these are stated in the, in the passage. But in cases where they're not, then you just need somebody who studied it more than you. So a good study Bible and or commentary will be helpful. Yes? Do you um, often get other uh, interpretations and look at them sometimes when I'm reading a certain thing in one interpretation I like to you know look it up somewhere else and see if I can get a little more clarification or yeah. understand it properly yeah no absolutely and uh, uh, when you when you get um, the, the commentaries I use almost always have for every passage here's the three ways you know, and here are the three ways people have understood it. And so you weigh through the three ways people have understood it, and, you know, and all of that. So, yeah, in the nature of the case, there are always these possible interpret possible interpretations. You know, uh, but often you can eliminate a couple of them fairly easy because you see some error that the interpreter made, not applying these rules that we're that we're talking about here. So, yeah, that's that. But that's very helpful to see what people have said. Or a different uh, translation of the Bible. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm trying to use Greek anyway. So, 
but yeah, if you don't know Greek, you could take Dr. Combs' class on Saturday. <laughs> but uh, but then having looking at you know there are parallel Bibles, so you can see you know four English translations all together. You know, as you turn the page. So, yeah, that's helpful. I want to show you, though, if you'll hold your finger back on page 2, turn all the way to the last page of this section, page 13. And we said that we got some suggested tools. Well, here, here they are. Good Bible translations, so that's where you start. And we've got first there the New International Version. That's what we use here at church. So if you come and you're taught here, then at least own one NIV to bring to church with you so that you're reading the same thing I'm reading. And those are the Bibles we give away, so you don't even have to buy one. We'll give you one, okay? But then you might want to read in other translations, and here are some other good ones, accurate ones. New American Standard Bible, uh, the King James, and the New King James. Uh, now, one of the reasons I recommend we use the NIV here, the New International Version, is one, it's written in um, it's written in contemporary language, so it's just easier to read. And years ago, when our parent church that planted this one changed the the use of their translation to the NIV, the reason we did that was because we read some statistics that people who use the NIV read their Bible more because they can understand it more. So they tend to read it more. Uh, Now, since that time, there are other translations that have come on the market. The English Standard Version, ESV, that's another good one that's not listed here. Um, So whether it still holds that people who own the NIV read more than all the others, I don't know. But people who have a translation that is accurate and that they can understand tend to read it more. So that's one of the reasons, the main reason we use the NIV. But here's another one. As you look at the printed text of the NIV, you'll, you'll notice that it is uh, formatted in paragraphs. And that's, to me, very important. Because as you read it, it subtly, and now not so subtly because I'm telling you about it, but it gives you the idea that these verses are not isolated to themselves. That they're actually connected in paragraphs. Because what we often do, and what many, like the King James, is printed this way, it's printed every verse looks like its own paragraph. Now, some translations have a, a printing feature where every verse looks like its own paragraph, but then the verse number they put in bold to indicate that this is starting a new paragraph. But you got to know that in order to know why that thing's in bold. So I just prefer that they put it in paragraph format. So if you were going to study now a particular passage, you would want to take the whole paragraph, not just one verse out of the paragraph. Because why? What does a paragraph do? A paragraph communicates one thought. And then all the sentences support that. All the verses contribute to that. That's why most often when I preach a passage on Sunday morning, the passage is a paragraph. Because we're trying to communicate one major thing out of this cluster of verses. 
It might be two paragraphs, but it's almost never in the middle of a paragraph that it starts or in the middle of a paragraph that it that it ends because we're trying to communicate full thoughts. So the NIV is laid out that way. And you need to think, we'll see that as we go on, but you need to think in terms of paragraphs. I'm trying to put this in its context, and that means uh, the grammatical context means putting it uh, as a whole passage. All right, then on page 13, we've got study Bibles. Somebody asked me last week about a study Bible. I think it was Eula. And I mentioned these two, NIV study Bible, Ryrie study. No, I mentioned MacArthur study Bible. But here's the Ryrie study Bible as well. So there's three um, that I'd recommend to you. And then you see the others. The last thing I'd point out is the Bible commentaries. And the Bible knowledge commentary is just two volumes. One volume for the Old Testament, one volume for the New Testament. There's the Bible study commentary. That's 49 volumes. But it's they're small volumes for each for, for a number of books. Some of the books are combined, obviously. Every man's Bible commentary, same thing. These are paperback, but very helpful, very straightforward. And then if you're feeling ambitious, you can get the Expositor's Bible Commentary. And uh, that that's 12 volumes of doorstops. <laughs> Big, thick, hard hardcover ones, okay? So those are just some examples of, of ones you could... Now, that that Expositor's Bible Commentary that's in 12 volumes, uh, that is now and has been for a few years available just in two volumes, just like the Bible Knowledge Commentary is. An Old Testament and a New Testament version. Just two volumes. And it's called the Zondervan NIV Commentary. But what that is is an abridged version of those 12 volumes. Uh, one of the gals in our church, not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before, um, one of our young ladies, Amanda Allen, said, hey, what commentary should I ask my parents to get me for Christmas? And I told her she should get that, that two-volume Zondervan NIV commentary. And she, she did. Her parents got it for her. And uh, she told me it's been helpful to her. So those are just some tools you could you could use. All right, back to page two. So interpret uh, every biblical text in light of its purpose. But also B now, interpret every biblical text in light of its chronology. God did not produce the Bible all at once. Rather, the Bible was composed over 1,600 years. In addition, the last book of the Bible was written almost 1,900 years ago. Therefore, in order to achieve the purpose of understanding the author's intended meaning, it's necessary to place a given book within the time period in which it was written. Often this can be determined by statements made in the book regarding events and or people about which dates are known. But again, a good study Bible or commentary is helpful. So what's an example of that? You've got uh, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, the beginning, but then the second book of your Bible is the Exodus. And the Exodus is the exit, leaving Egypt. And then you've got these other first books talking about the dealing with the wandering in the wilderness after the Israelites Exodus. left Egypt. So the, the second book is about the Exodus. Well, when did the Exodus happen? You know, what was the chronology? What was it? What was going? Who was the Pharaoh at the time? And how? You know, how would you know that? Well, um, events that are mentioned in these books 
often point to the time in which they were written and so where they fit chronologically. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. Gives us an idea about when the exodus occurred. 1 Kings 6 1. Here's what it says. In the 480th year, after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So this is given a time marker to tell you when Solomon started to build the temple. But it gives the time marker by saying he, he started this in the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt and in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. So if you knew when Solomon started to reign over Israel, you could do the math. And uh, it turns out we know when Solomon started to reign over Israel. It was in the year 970, 970 B.C. 970. But he started building in the fourth year of his reign. So that would be 966, because when it's B.C., you got to go. So it's 966 B.C. That's when he started to build the temple. But then the passage says that fourth year of his reign was 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So you take 966 and you add 480 to it, and you get 1446 B.C. 1446 B.C. That's when the exodus occurred. That's when the Israelites left Egypt. 1446 B.C. That's when Moses lived. That's when in the book of Exodus the one named, the unnamed Pharaoh, just called Pharaoh. So whoever that Pharaoh is, it's the Pharaoh that was on the throne in 1446. Which means you've got to throw all your DVDs of the Ten Commandments away. Because Yul Brenner was not the guy. <laughs> and it was not Ramses. You know, that's who Yul Brenner played, but it was not Ramses. Ramses was several hundred years later. So uh, it was it was a pharaoh named Amenhotep. This is the pharaoh. So you've got those kind of chronological things in the Bible, and it helps you then to understand some of the things that were going on and the time period in which they were going on. Interpreting in light of its chronology. Then, bottom of page two, as we put things in their historical context, interpret not only in terms of purpose, chronology, but geography. Most Christians today live thousands of miles from the countries where Bible events took place. Believers should become familiar with the relationships between ancient sites and current boundaries. In addition, it's valuable to learn about the terrain of Bible lands. Atlases are valuable resources for this kind of information, and we gave some recommendations on page 13 for that. So what's an example of this? Uh, An example of this is that whenever you read in the Bible that someone or a group of people go to Jerusalem, it almost always says they went up to Jerusalem. Now, if we go to the UP, 
uh, if you go to Gaylord or someplace in Michigan, we would say we're going up north, right? But in the Bible, they would say this about Jerusalem, even if they're already north of Jerusalem. Even if, in fact, they're going south. We're going up. And the reason is because Jerusalem is elevated. So as you read that, and you go, they're going up to Jerusalem, but wait a minute, they're over here. They're already north of Jerusalem. They're not going up north, but they're going up every time you go to Jerusalem, no matter where you are, because it's an an elevated city. So knowing that that geography is helpful. Further, uh, if you look in the Psalms, the book of Psalms, you've got a, a cluster of Psalms that at the top, the superscription, that's what it's called, at the, at the top, at the beginning, where it'll say a psalm of David or something like that, a psalm for the music director. These all say a song of, in the King James, it says a song of degrees. Uh, and in the NIV, it says a song of ascents. You're ascending. And the, and the, and the King James says degrees. You know, By degrees, they're making their way step by step. Now, what are these? These are psalms and songs that pilgrims to Jerusalem would sing and recite as they were going to the holy city. And when they're going to the holy city, they're going up. And that's why they're called songs of ascending, songs of ascents or songs of of degrees. So you have an example of this in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is a song of ascent. And it starts out, the very first line says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes. So this is a pilgrim going and there, you know, you can see them now. You got that. If you've got that, now you can start to go, okay, I see what's going on. They're making their way to the holy city and now they're getting within sight. And I lift up my eyes and I see Jerusalem. And that's where the Lord is. That's the Lord's temple and the Holy of Holies. And I'm going to be there. And this is from where my help comes. Even though I don't live there, I'm a pilgrim. But wherever I'm living, my help comes from the one who is there. The Yahweh, the true and living God. You know, so they believed all of this about you know God and his temple and the centrality of Jerusalem. We see that much. We see that later in Daniel because Daniel would what? Daniel would pray and he would pray toward what? He'd pray toward Jerusalem. So interpret every biblical text in light of its purpose, in light of its chronology, its geography, and then top of page three, in light of its culture. Every biblical text in light of its culture. Modern day thought and behavior are different from that of Bible times. And there are cultural differences between groups of people mentioned in Scripture. So there's a difference between the Bible and us, obviously. But then even within Scripture, because Scripture was written over a 1,600-year period, then you're going to find differences between the people that are mentioned in Scripture. For example, the Roman culture of Paul's day was totally different from the Hebrew culture of Moses' day. So it's important then to understand the culture behind any given any given text. So you have cultural things happening in the Old Testament that you don't have in the New Testament. Book of uh, Ruth. 
you know, when you get to the you get to the fourth uh, chapter, and you've got Boaz, who's becoming her husband, but he's making a deal with the closest relative to take uh, Ruth as his wife, and then and then consummating the deal. You know, we might do that with a handshake. They do that by exchanging a sandal. That's what you got in Ruth chapter 4. They exchanged sandals. But what is that? That's a cultural thing that they did in order to ratify a contract, an agreement with with uh, someone. So you know, you've got these, these sorts of differences of, of culture. So what's the very first principle? We're going to see four. Here's the first one. A text cannot mean what it never meant. It doesn't mean today something that it didn't mean then. It doesn't mean something new for us today. It means what it meant. Now we got to apply it. But first we got to know what to apply. We got to know what it meant. So we got to get back there. So some teachers, books that I've read and learned from over the years say you've got to first get then and there before you go to here and now. And in, and in fact, I've got a book on my shelf called About Preaching, a good book. Believe it or not, I've got some good books on my shelf. And the name of the book is Between Two Worlds. But the Between Two Worlds is saying, you as the preacher stand between the world of the Bible and the world of the people that are listening to you. And you're trying to bring those two worlds together. You're trying to show what it meant, but you're also trying to say, okay, this is now what we got to do with it. Here and now. So there's then and there, and there's here and now, and we stand between those those two worlds. That's what we're trying to do. But a text cannot mean what it never what it never meant. So first find out what it meant to them, and then we can see how it applies to us. All communication has an historical context. And secondly, all communication has a literary context. In addition to the historical setting, interpretation is influenced by literary factors. Different literary types are to be interpreted differently. So here's an example. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's a proverb. Now, it's not a biblical proverb. It's just a modern-day proverb. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Um, But, you know, these things are not blanket guarantees. You eat an apple a day, you may drop over dead. In fact... Uh, many years ago, there was a guy who was popularizing, you know, fitness and jogging. Some of you may remember the name Jim Fix, and he dropped dead of a heart attack. So this is why I've avoided this phenomenon. This is all going to pass, okay? Most people all die. I'm still here to talk and laugh about it, right? But seriously, we all and we all know that healthy eating—that's what an apple a day is saying. Healthy eating is is good for you. You don't have to go to the doctor as much if you eat healthy. Well, that's true generally. And exercise means you're not going to have to go to the doctor as much. That's true generally, but none of these are blanket guarantees. They're not legal guarantees. They're proverbs. So does that mean the proverb is wrong? No, the proverb's absolutely right. Because the proverb never purported to be a legal guarantee. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a proverb. That's what proverbs are. They're generally true, but they're not always true. Now, how does that affect you in interpreting the Bible? We've got a book in the Bible called Proverbs. And you can't take those Proverbs as legal guarantees. And if you do, you can get messed up. 
Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that's a legal guarantee. It means if you train your kid right, they turn out right all the time. Which, now, conversely means if they didn't turn out right, what does that mean? You must not have screwed up. <laughs> and you have had, you've had parents, <coughs> lots of parents, who have been taught by pastors and preachers not differentiating literary context and what a proverb is. And so they've made these legal guarantees. And so you've got these parents who may have given their heart and soul to these children. And a child goes wayward. And now it's, God says it's my fault. So you've got, you've got to be extremely careful with that. Uh, take the book of Psalms. Psalms is poetry. And the psalmist says that if you, in the King James it says, if you beat your child with a rod, he will not die. Well, depend doesn't it depend <laughs> like what kind of rod you got <laughs> and how many times you did it right and there was a cult in Michigan 30 years ago house of Judah and a kid died he died being disciplined and I remember the guy who who ran that thing he quoted that verse the Bible says, if you beat him, he will not die. And this kid died. Now, he's taking that as a legal guarantee. So God somehow failed in this. God's the one who said he would die. But a po- poetry doesn't, isn't to be interpreted as anything but poetry. And Proverbs aren't to be interpreted as anything but Proverbs. On that Proverb 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 says... A righteous man will have a violent son. And a violent man will have a righteous son. So even in the Bible itself, you've got examples of good parents, righteous people, who have unrighteous children. So it's not a a legal guarantee, but it's generally true. It's generally true that kids follow in the steps of what they they were taught. So it's not a blanket guarantee, but a general truth. The Bible uses various literary types and devices that have to be taken into account for a proper interpretation. So what do we do? Interpret every biblical text in light of the particular form that it is. And the Bible has a bunch of forms. You've got 66 books. They're not all the same. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are narratives, proverbs, parables, letters, and so on. And each is to be interpreted accordingly. Now, next week, I will talk about some of those and some of the distinguishing features of them and how it affects how you interpret. But for now, just recognize you got different ones. They've got to be interpreted accordingly. We'll pick it up there next week.